this is a review of the timeline that we did the first 10 minutes of class on Monday, September 9, or something like that. Uh, starting from the very beginning of wave one and going through to really the onset of the warring states period. So let's get started then. As we said, the Shang Dynasty is said to have lasted from 1600 to 11 or 1050, but we have no evidence of the Shang Dynasty textually. We do have archaeological, but not textually until 1250. And so history starts with the Shang in 1250 with the oracle bones. The oracle bones, as you remember, were used by King Wu Ding uh, to divine the will of the high god Shang Di through the ancestors who were the intermediaries between living kings and high nature war and harvest god. We see in that obviously some very important things, the centrality of family to religion. I repeat, the centrality of family to religion. The centrality of family to politics. The origins of the Chinese script, that pictographic, logographic writing style that was so important to unifying China across many different language groups because they could all communicate in the script if they couldn't by tongue. So that's 1250. We then have Zhou legends about the last Shang King, who you saw in the video. His name, if you care, is Zhou Xin, Z-H-O-U-X-I-N. Don't you hate the Shang for having a king named Zhou? Zhou Xin, Z-H-O-X-I-N. Wikipedia him. He is so hilarious. The story is great. So I am going to tell you the story of the last Shang emperor. We've talked about him being the pope that you can't kill, although he's evil. He's as evil as the Renaissance popes. Zhou Xin was famous for these things. Check it out. This is a great story. You don't have to like take notes. I'm, I'm recording this. Enjoy the story. There are two stories that I'm going to tell you by the end of this little thing. Zhou Xin, last Shang King. Why did the people hate him? Legend has it, and it's in the Xu Jing. The Xu Jing. Nice, fat, fascinating book that I read on Mount Tai about four years ago. Um, that he used the people's labor, muscle power, pulled the men and sons, the fathers and sons, off their farms where they needed to work to feed themselves and their families and live a decent, peaceful life. He pulled them off their farms to go and make a pleasure park for himself. They excavated a huge, massive, public park-sized pleasure park for him in which they dug an artificial lake, filled it, according to the Western Joe, with, are you ready, wine, a lake of wine, and put artificial islands in the center of this lake, upon which every day he had the people's pigs, chickens, goats, slaughtered, roasted, skewered, and hung from trees on the, on the islands. So there were meat trees on the island that you got to by pedaling your boat with your homies across the wine lake, drinking the lake as you go to get a nice buzz. And then you, pedal up to, you paddle up to that island, nice and buzzed, and you're I'm kind of hungry. And so you just reach up to the meat tree and grab some of the wealth of the common people who raise these animals to feed your privileged, elite, worthless self on their work. It's nice to be rich. Not only did they enjoy the meat on the meat tree islands in the middle of the wine lake, according to the Western Joe, they also enjoyed the women, the daughters and wives of the kingdom, 
the most pretty ones, the most beautiful ones. They pulled from their families, made into concubines, second to 80th wives to enjoy. And so the story goes that he just had orgies left and right, drunk, eating the food of the people, and abusing the women of the people in his elite pleasure lake, his Sentosa Island, his, his personal Sentosa Island. Um, worse yet, the story goes, he did have a wife, and this queen was perverse. She enjoyed, sexually, she got erotic thrills from watching commoners forced to walk across a bronze pole that was set above a big, massive, human-sized bronze frying pan that was set above a fire. And so this is literally a human-sized bronze frying pan with oil in it, boiling, above which is again a bronze pole that is also oiled. Let's have some fun, honey. Let's get the poor guy over there to walk from this side of the pole to that side of the pole. And if he makes it, he can live. And if he doesn't, oh boy, that's when it gets fun. And of course, the pole is red hot and slippery with oil. And this guy's feet are burning as he walks across, according to the Western Joe. And so, of course, halfway across, he would fall, fall into the oil and be roasted alive. Giving incredible perverse thrills to the woman who would then say, hubba hubba ding ding ding, come on honey, let's go have a good, you know, let's go. I'm ready. According to the Western Joe. That's the story of the last Sean King. Wine Lake, meet trees, orgies with your best friends and the, and the, the daughters. Seriously, it's all, in the, it's all in the Xu Jing. I do not exaggerate. And then perverse, sadistic, um, entertainments, much like the perverse elites of Rome with their gladiatorial things, right? It's fun to watch the common people kill each other, right? The elites in, the, in, the, in history are always somewhat disturbing from the past even to today. So that's the story of the last Shang King, overthrown by, and yet the guy is the Pope. He doesn't pray to the ancestors. Shang Di gets bad word about what's going on down there, and we're terrified to get rid of him. King Wan, King Wu, and the Duke in 1050. King Wan, hear this, was a vassal of the Zhou. I'm sorry, was a vassal of the Shang. He did adopt Shang ritual practices, Shang script, all that sort of thing. But he was on the Wei River, the frontier. Are you understanding this? I'm sorry. Yellow River, there's the Wei. Here's China proper the Shang territory. The Wei is a frontier border state. It's kind of like the Wild West. There's a lot of debate, a lot of controversy about whether the, the, the Zhou tribe, the vassal state, were actually Chinese or barbarians who had recently converted to Chinese. There is a lot of debate about that. It's really interesting. I read about it because we have archaeology. We have all sorts of evidence. So there are very, very good, serious arguments about were these people outsiders or insiders? But I will leave that aside unless uh, somebody wants to borrow some books. In any case, their main, their main job was to A, defend against the true barbarians who were further to the, the uh, west and the Wei River, and second, to 
um, train horses to provide horses to the Shang King. Horses are like, horses are gold, obviously. Horses pull chariots in war. Horses are expensive. There's no such thing as a Lexus, so the next best thing is a horse back then, right? It's a luxury item. And so these guys were somewhat cowboys, horse trainers, horse traders, who provided horses for China proper. In any case, as I said, the, uh, the vassal King Wan of the Zhou tribe, the Zhou fief, did do the same rituals, did adopt the Shang practices, the Shang script, all that sort of thing, and he did the rituals more reverently, more properly than obviously our last Shang King himself. And so he attracted the people through his good behavior, his, his model behavior, his sage behavior, he attracted the people to actually vote with their feet and leave the Shang territories where after all they're being exploited for their labor, for their, for their animals, for their women, to actually pick up and vote with their feet and go to the Zhou area. We would much rather live under this man. We will serve him because he does not abuse us. China is losing people today to other countries because the people don't trust the Chinese government. America is losing people today, believe it or not, to other countries because Americans are starting to not trust their government. And so these things still happen. People do vote with their feet. And they came to the Zhou state, according to Zhou history, official history. Um, King Wan did not try to overthrow Shang, but his son King Wu did. So King Wan goes down in history as the man who was the pattern of a cultivated, cultivated, meaning self-developed, ideal person. His son King Wu is the marshal, the military. Wu did overthrow the Shang. Wu did uh, found the Zhou dynasty. So why do we call King Wan the first king of the Zhou dynasty? Because his son, King Wu, posthumously, after his death, said, in honor of my father, we will call him officially the first king, although he never was the king of the Zhou dynasty. He was just the king of the vassal state. Technically, the first king is Wu, but officially, Wu said, daddy deserves the credit because he's the one that attracted everybody to us. King Wu died five years after taking the throne. This is an unfortunate thing. We have just conquered the Shang territory, and our king who did it died. This brings the Duke of Zhou, King Wu's brother. But succession from king to the next king, how did it work? How was it supposed to work? A king dies, who's supposed to take the throne, Anna? The son. The son, the son was King Cheng, C-H-E-N-G, and King Cheng was Again, 9 to 18 years old, depending on which source you look at, and it doesn't really matter for our purposes, because regardless, he was considered too young. And the Duke of Zhou, in this very sensitive time, were a five-year-old new dynasty, and many people still are, many Shang loyalists are still resistant. The Duke of Zhou became regent, that's an important word, R-E-G-E-N-T, and ruled as regent until King Cheng, young King Cheng, was old enough to rule himself. The Duke of Zhou is hugely important. Confucius idolized the Duke of Zhou. Why? Because the Duke of Zhou again developed ritual as the foundational political and social order, the way that kings behave and also assert their authority and keep their people happy. From the highest levels of the hierarchy, vassals, to the lowest levels of the hierarchy, commoners. It is proper ritual behavior.
that keeps the people willing to serve you because you are clearly in your behavior on a daily basis a good man, a man who is careful to do the sacrifices correctly, yada, yada, yada. Religiously, this is the most important moment in Chinese history and perhaps in many ways in world history because China has just gone from theism, the belief in a god, a he, up there, to atheism, no belief in God. Atheism doesn't mean I don't believe there is a God. Atheism means I have no belief in a God, no theism. There's just no God there. The Zhou instead proclaim the mandate of heaven, which is, again, the most historically unique ancient political theory on the planet. Because unlike all the others, the Hindus, we get to rule because we're the Brahmin caste. We were born into it and we get to stay there and it's ours by divine caste, right? Christian medieval kings, the Pope says that we get to reign by divine right. God wants us there whether we're good or not, forever and ever and ever. Only the Joe came up with one that was based on justice to this radical extent. If we are not good kings, you should overthrow us. Our duty and responsibility is to you. The mandate of heaven is an astonishing piece of political theory and a double-edged sword. The legacy of the Shang continues. The Joe bronzes are still used in ritual. Ancestor rituals are still very important. The script is still used. But instead of a god up there, there is now simply one natural force that brings bad kings down like the law of gravity and replaces them with good kings. The Western Joe lasted for 300 years. That's longer than America. And notice the Western Joe was a 900-year dynasty. <laughs> That's three times longer than America in one dynasty in this vast ocean of history. King Wu, King Wu, the Duke, they start their, their feudal system. We've got over, how many, how many vassal states do we have in the beginning? No. Over 200. We've got over 200 vassal states in the Western Zhou. Don't be confused here because it has a wallop and a wow if you actually get your head around this. At the beginning of the spring and autumn period, in 771, like in the, when you, when you started doing your chapter, at what, how many, how many, uh, how many in your readings did you have? Seven. We went from 200 originally, and throughout the Western Joe, for those 300 years, there were 200. And then, oh, now let's get to our second story. Here's the story of how the Western Joe fell. What did your textbook say about how the Western Joe fell? Huh? Taking in too much pleasure. I mean, be careful now. Are you confusing that with the Shang story of taking in too much pleasure? I just told you the Shang story of the, the wine lake and such. Don't be confused. I'm telling you two stories. Both of them mark a turning point. The Shang king with his wine lake, that's the turning point that ends the Shang. Now I'm going to tell you the next evil king story that ends the golden age of Western Zhou. That is... 
part of it, but see, this is why I don't believe in, in assigning textbook readings, because you read it and it doesn't stick. That was later. Your textbook says that a combination of vassals and barbarians, quote, invaded the capital, burned it to the ground, and killed the, killed the king. And they moved the capital to the west, to Luoyang. I'm sorry, to the, to the east, to Luoyang, to the central plain. That's what your textbook says. It's in the assigned readings. This is why those, those people who raised their hand and said, I don't like listening because I do better when I read. Well, here's evidence to me that when you read, you don't, you don't retain it any better because you read it and you can't answer the question. Um, you always want to be looking for major turning points, like the end of the Western Zhou Dynasty. But the stories of this history, they're traditional. They're not necessarily historically true, although we're not real sure, again, because we have such... such uh, short sources from the Western Zhou. The story is that King Yo, Y-O-U. Why does his name know? Because it's a fun story. Do you agree that the Shang King story is fun? The last Shang King story is fun? Come on. Filmmakers, where are you? Dramatists, where are you? Dancers, where are you? Writers, fiction, short stories, where are you? Painters, where are you? That's a hilarious story. You can take it in so many places. Jesus, just pick your scene. Do you want to, you know, the homies in the lake? The homies under the tree? king and his, his lovely wife uh, sitting next to the human frying pan, you know, pick your image and take it. Um, dance it. Sing it. It's wild. Film it. In 771, we have a second one. In 771, the 12th generation. We did 30, 30 years of generation. Well, some kings died young, that sort of thing. There are 12 kings in the Western Joe. The 12th one's name is King Yo, Y-O-U. What did King Yo do? King Yo, the story goes, had a concubine. What is a concubine? Not a prostitute. Thank you for saying that. See, look at us. Look at our Western. We have, we have our Western lens, and we try to look at China through our Western lens, and it distorts what we see, because we see our own way of thinking. Concubines are not prostitutes. You don't pay these women. You bring these women into your home, and they live like a harem with you in order to give you heirs, to give you children. So you have basically a platoon of women, sometimes a company. They're literally ranked. Sonia, concubines, almost said prostitutes. Concubines are ranked ritually. Concubines of the first rank, 10. Concubines of the second, probably nine actually because that's the, the magic number. Concubines of the second rank. Concubines of the third rank. Up to sometimes 10 ranks. So you could literally have your choice of 90 women every night if you were the king. Sumptuary codes would, keep, would limit you to the number of concubines you could have based on your level in the hierarchy. Just like you can't wear a certain color if you're not, you know, in the same way you can't have a certain number of concubines unless you've like been promoted up that, that list, that hierarchy. In any case, so she was a concubine, a family member, a secondary wife. Her name is Baosi, B-A-O-S-I. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's, that's the Shang King's wife. No, 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 her name is Baosi, that's right. So King Yo and his concubine Baosi. Baosi was gorgeous. One of China's five beauties. They love to number their beauties. The, the Chinese love to number everything. So they have five beauties, beautiful women. She was stunningly drop-dead, just kill me, gorgeous. And so this, this king was unhealthily wrapped around her finger. Women will do that to a man. They will wrap a man around his, their, her finger. 
And she made him miserable because, although he was a king and he showered her with everything, trying to buy her love, the woman never smiled. She never smiled. She was a bummer. She was a depressive. She never smiled, no matter what he did. As you read, during the Western Joe, certain walls started coming up to defend against particularly invasions from the north and from the south into the Way River Valley. This is what I'm reading about right now. I'm reading about the, the fall. And so there were walls set up, and these walls had watchtowers on them. And the watchtowers were spaced two, three, four, five kilometers apart on the Great Walls. These walls would later be, many of them, connected into the One Great Wall. Okay? So the One Great Wall was not built by one guy. It was connected from Western Joe and Eastern Joe, uh, Small, smaller walls. So, whenever there is an invasion from nomads from the south or from the north, watchmen on these walls would light a fire on the watchtower. The smoke would be seen kilometers down at the next watchtower. They would light a fire. You get me? And so, finally the word would get to the king, to the, the capital, and what would the king do? You know this. Help me. Talk. What would the king do? There are invaders coming, therefore... Huh? Send armies. This is a feudal system. What is he going to do immediately? Get armies from the peasants. Close. Get armies from the lords. That's the whole feudal thing. The vassals owe me military assistance in the event of mortal danger. So you got to picture it. All these vassals, all throughout the central plain, get the word. Oh. The king, is, the king is under attack. And so they rouse their generals, they rouse their, their armies, their troops, and they all run, 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 double time, to the defense of the great king, descendant of King Wan and King Wu. And they get there. I pictured it at 3 in the morning. I pictured them all just like, you know, ready to fight, ready to kick butt and take names and defend their king. And they get there, and word comes to the king with Bowser, the woman right next to him, Oh my God, it was a false alarm. It took weeks, if not months, to travel this territory. And so all of these people are traveling for months, weeks or months, in order to arrive there. Fast. They get there and they hear it was a false alarm. The king obviously feels like an idiot. Everybody's like, oh, this is so embarrassing except for our worthless, beautiful, depressive concubine who finds it funny and she laughs. Ha 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 And King Yo, being an idiot, who is far too, far too, far too weak to be around a beautiful woman, sees her and like the dumbest scene from Shakespeare says, oh, she laughs. And his heart melts. And he doesn't care. He's like, okay, guys, sorry, thanks, bye, go back. Won't happen again. They go, or will it? Story has it that he paid his watchmen to set fires repeatedly so that that cluster feck of a situation, I said feck, of a situation would repeat itself over and over so that he could see this woman smile. Time and time again, everybody rushes. Time and time again, it was a false alarm. Time and time again, she laughs. Time and time again, he says, oh, she smiles. 
and time and time again, his lords are starting to go, what an absolute dirtbag loser this guy is. Until finally, you know the story, right? You know how this one's going to end. You've heard the story of the boy who cried wolf. The time that he, that he really does need them to come, they don't come. The capital gets burned to the ground. Barbarians and some of the vassals, now this is historically true. Barbarians from the south and the north and some of the vassal lords teamed up to invade that capital, burn it to the ground, and kill that bastard. And they did. Yes? Well, because there were hordes of nomads in the Way River at that time, and so the, the smartest thing to do was run away so that they don't kill all of us. They had lost the Way River. It was conquered by this invasion. Oh, so, so they had to run away to Loyang and start so, so the, people who attacked the Eastern Joe. No, no, no. Exactly. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that, right? So they literally had to abandon the Wei River and go to Luoyang, where there was already a second administrative capital. It was already there. And it was now the main capital. This starts the Eastern Zhou. From this point, the, the royal court, the Zhou kings, will never have the military power or the authority and respect that they had before that. They've started losing the mandate of heaven. If you want to know who took the throne after they killed King Yo, his son did. Okay? So they ran with his son, the loyalist, ran with his son from this capital, goodbye Western Joe, and took him here, which caused a lot of problems. And I'm reading a book about that right now. What problems would it cause? The royal court has just relocated. The king and his ministers and all of them have just relocated to the second most major city in the central plain. Socially, what problems would that cause? Thank you, Salar. Did you hear Salar? Salar's thinking. There are already vassals who control all of these areas, and suddenly the king's, the king's uh, people are moving in and taking an area that has been ruled by a vassal for a long time in Luoyang. And so there starts to be resentment because this is our territory. Look at the king moving in here, right? Look at the royal court moving in here. And so this causes uh, a lot of tensions, too. Long story short, you read the spring and autumn period. It is an age of slow decline. The Zhou king is still the one who does rituals to the ancestors. He's a ritual king, but otherwise he's a puppet. Who has the real power? There was a fancy $5 word that's not hard and is used in newspapers and magazines today about... States that have real power, even though they don't have official power. Anybody remember that word? America is called the blank of the world today. It starts with an H. Who said it? Hegemon. Hegemon. H-E-G-E-M-O-N. Age of hegemons. That's the, war, that's the spring and autumn period. The first, say, 250 years of the Eastern Zhou. 
the age of hegemons. What is a hegemon? That's not a bad picture, actually, of the arrangement of, of states. These are, we call these the seven states left. You got Yan up here, you got Lu right here, no, no, Chi right here, you got Yue down here, you got Chu over here, you got Jin up here, and then you've got the little ones in the middle. The hegemon is whichever prince of whichever of these states has the biggest army and so can keep the other states from starting wars. Those of you who are interested in modern international relations, diplomacy, political theory, politics, current events, United Nations, all that sort of thing, look at this. This is China having a multi-state system. Yes, there's a king right here on the central plain, and he's got a little bitty Joe state, but who cares because he has no power, and everybody is just like, yeah, we'll keep him in place because who cares? but all these big states are starting to become ambitious. And so it's like Europe. It's like Europe after the French Revolution. You've got modern nation states, all with their own national interests and a need for some way to keep all hell from breaking loose in a world war. And this is 700 years before Christ. China has experience with balance of power, international relations, for 500 years from the fall of the Western Zhou until the first emperor solved the problem. Oh, and by the way, he was over here in the Wei River in the state of Qin. The sophistication of the political system, the lessons learned politically and diplomatically, Peace treaties, military alliances, diplomacy, all sorts of stuff are huge. And China today studies this history when it talks about how to deal with the United States, how to deal with Russia. They learn from the lessons of their brilliant political and military uh, thinkers back then, geniuses. So this is an incredibly fascinating period for us today because China is trying to tell America and the UN, hey, big shots, you know what? We have 700 years of experience of international relations. It's very much like this. We've been through our own world wars and you're treating us like we're a third world country. You need to understand our history because it's way deeper than you have any idea of Westerners, United Nations people. In any case, so the hegemon would be whichever one of these states was most powerful so that all the other states could like say, hey, just like we do with America, the hegemon today, America, will you do something to Syria because Syria is being bad? Everybody turns to America because it's the most powerful. It's the hegemon today. Hey, America, will you do something to Libya? Hey, America, will you do something to Iraq? You don't have the international legal right. You're violating international law every time you invade another country. It's against the United Nations, but America wants to do it and nobody can really stop them because they're the hegemon, unofficial power. So this is called the age of hegemons. Confucius is born 
around 500, but that's where we're going next. And finally, let me see, are there, oh. What happens when, for example, watch me. We'll call this the state of way, which I think it was. Okay, so watch what's gonna happen to this little bitty, totally disadvantaged geographically interior state. Think about it. Who rules the state? What's the name of the guy who rules the state? Vassal, all right, a lord, okay? And then how does he govern this state? Who does he use to help him govern his little state of way? Advisors, our other word for them? The sure, S-H-I, which in English is officials. Officers, people who sit in offices and do economic tax collection, do grain distribution, do road and dike rep you know, repair, and all, just like today, we have our governments, right? So officials, officers, in way. So you've got the Lord and you've got his officers. Is that an inherited thing, these officers, Sokte? Is that an inherited thing, these officers? Think about it, you should know. Think about it, you should know. They are. They are. When a vassal gets a state, remember, he started appointing ministers, officials, under him. The vassal got the state, it's his for heredity, it's his heredity, right? He's an aristocrat. And then he appoints officials. And they, when they die, their kid gets their office. So this is an aristocratic system. From the hierarchy all the way down, it's all hereditary. When this Lord of Wei gets invaded by, let's have Qi invade it. What just happened to the people in Wei? Particularly the aristocrats in Wei. This is very important. What just happened to them all? Do they have a job? What are they going to do? Oh, I'm a commoner. Okay, I'll just be a commoner. I'll just go farm. Get dirty every day. And I've been living high on the hog with bronzes and, you know, a nice living. I'm an elite. I'm an aristocrat. What are they going to do? By doing what? You're on the right track. Offer your services. They suddenly become men without a job, but with great experience. And so they start looking for other lords. Look, I'm unemployed. A lot of your parents either themselves or, if not themselves, their friends, lost their jobs in the finance district, uh, sector during and after 2008. J.P. Morgan laid off tens of thousands of people, financial executives and, and so forth. They laid off an army of people, and suddenly these guys are like, Jesus, I'm used to being rich, and suddenly I just got fired. And so they go to Chase Manhattan. They go anywhere else. Look, I've got a lot of experience. Will you take me on? In the same way, these political officials start going to all the other places needing a job offering their services selling their services it causes a lot of breakdown socially now what was the uh, what were the military changes over time in the warring states period in the spring and autumn in the warring states period that was really interesting reading in the textbook what military changes happened Thanks, and let's do change over time. In the Western Joe, how did you fight a war? What were your weapons, and then how did you fight? Uh, the weapons were uh, just like the, like 
primitive weapons like close range weapons, whereas during the later period they developed bows and arrows. And uh, in the uh, Western drill, they used uh, uh, elites for the army that were like trained over a long period of time, whereas later on they used military drafts and they used inexperienced people, but they had a lot more of them. Okay, so, so backing up, what are our weapons made of in the Western Joe? What metal were they made of? Iron. Not iron. Bronze. We're in the Bronze Age in the Western Joe. So we got bronze weapons. What was the major... Even if you don't like war stuff, this is interesting because you're going to see all sorts of other dominoes from social to economic and everything else fall and change because of military stuff. Bronze weapons, what was the biggest, most powerful uh, branch of the army, the one that was like the scariest? Chariot. The chariot. Chariots pulled by, pulled by four horses, three men on them. One man on the right has a big halberd, a big huge lance with a blade on it that you can just, you know, you got long distance slashing power. I can, I can behead all three of you with one... Right? And, you're, and I'm up here on my chariot, we're just going through, and I'm just like, like mowing grass. You just, all you people on the ground, you just died because I've got a big long halberd, a lance with a blade at the end, and I've just decapitated all of you. Chariots. Four horses in front, you're terrified. Another guy on the right, uh, on the left, and then of course the general in the middle. This was the big scary war machine. Until arms race starts happening. Two things happen. Oh, no, I'm sorry. So if that's, if that's the tech, what's the culture of war at this point? There was a great story in your reading. They meet up. Like, um, they meet up to decide a time and space to fight, and they both get ready. They, um, they Can you hear to their, They pay respect to their ancestors, and then they start the fight at the time. And if your enemy starts losing and starts running away with their back turned, they're crossing the river, and you can shoot them in the back, do you? No. no. It was chivalry. It was like our age of knights in the medieval period. You had a code of honor and you observed it. There were ritual rules to war. And so it was very civilized in this period. But when all these guys are going, oh God, the center cannot hold. The Joe King is no longer able to control from the top and the center. They all start getting scared. And so they're like, we don't have time to be ritual anymore. Chariots are a problem. This state has a lot of chariots. What can we do to overcome our chariot imbalance if we're gin? They did, they did a different thing. You went from that to infantry. What's infantry? Foot soldiers. This is a nightmarish period. We saw armies the size of 10,000 to 20,000 in the Western Joe become armies of 200,000 in the Eastern Joe, mostly foot soldiers. Now, I might be able to, to chop your four heads off with my halberd on a chariot with 100 other chariots when there were only 10,000 of you on the other side. But when there are a fifth of a million of you on the other side, you're going to tire us out on the chariots. 
a bigger infantry is going to neutralize the chariot advantage. A mob of 10,000 foot soldiers can overwhelm a chariot. The ritual start going too. Iron comes into play. Oh, and the infantry, yes, you're right, Louis. The infantry had a crossbow. So they could actually shoot from a distance, and the guy with the chariot with that long halberd couldn't come close enough to us to slice our heads off with his, his bladed lance because we were shooting him from a distance with our, with our crossbow. They actually had machine gun crossbows. They had machine gun crossbows automatically repeating fire. Amazing technology. Um, you just pull the trigger and it's like it's a bow and arrow that you pull the trigger and it just shoots more and more like an M16 with a clip of bullets. The, the military technology was amazing in this period. What is the effect on this socially? Who were the generals in this age? The generals were aristocrats. Well, back when all they had to do was have a lot of chariots to overwhelm a smaller army. That was easy enough. But when we hit this, this chaotic age where all the rules are being broken, watch the social domino fall. Do you really want a guy leading your army because his daddy was rich, his daddy had a big name, his daddy was Bill Gates, and so he's Bill Gates Jr.? Do you really want that to be the reason he has your army in his hands? But that's the principle of inherited office. Lords, we're now like, we, this inheritance stuff, because your daddy did it, you get to do it. It's got some limitations. And so we see suddenly the rise of, we go from this, this is huge. from aristocracy to meritocracy. Who's general? The guy who deserves to be. Not the guy whose daddy was. The guy who merits it. The guy who is a proven leader, proven brave, proven strategically smart, proven loyal. And so you could suddenly rise into the ranks of the aristocracy. You could rise above the aristocracy through your ability. The work ethic comes to the top in China and really stays there for the rest of its time. This whole story of Yao Shun and Yu, who was the one who started as a peasant and became an emperor? Shun. Because he merited it. So this idea of merit, because of this whole military breakdown, starts changing the, the feudal order of an aristocracy. Do you understand that? The principle of inherited aristocracy falls, and the principle of merit rises. It's no longer who you are, it's what you can do. Yep. No, 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 it's a good question. Any, so, in the same way, 
wow, I really need my agriculture to be as good as possible in the state of chi here so that I can grow a bigger population with more food. And so I need a good minister of agriculture. And if that's a farmer who can point to his field and say, yeah, look what I've done. He's far better than minister of agriculture's spoiled son, right? So yeah, just on down the line. So we start seeing a political crisis lead to a very sort of egalitarian thing. I can't wait for, what's his name, for, for Seth to come so that we can do our FTW thing about, because you see here egalitarianism, equality, based on who you are, not on who your daddy is. It took the French Revolution 250 years ago for this to be a reality in the West. And China's doing it 2,700 years ago. Now, does anybody have any other questions? We start with 25 states, well, 200 states plus about 25 of them big enough to matter. By the time of the Warring States period when Confucius is born, we get down to about seven, and it becomes a last man standing thing. Is there anything else I want to say? The two Confucian classics were written in the Western Joe. Did Confucius write the Confucian classics? Put this on, good. Those of you who say no. So why do we call them the Confucian classics? Who said something? Huh? They inspired him. And you've read them. And so certainly, and these are two of the five Confucian classics that people will memorize in order to become elites for 2,000 solid years. This is the SAT. This is AP. The Shujing, the Shurjing, the Book of Documents, the Book of Songs. Confucius loved them. 300 years later, they will be required reading for anybody who wants to become an elite. And that will remain true for 2,000 years. That's why these, these, these books matter. All right, I'm done. Any other questions? If the spring and, autumn, spring and autumn period is one of a gradual decline, the Warring States period from, from around 500, I know I've been talking a lot, but this is, this is it for you in terms of wave one. The Warring States period, which starts, we're still in the Eastern Zhou Dynasty here, right? 771 to 220. It breaks down into spring and autumn, the first 250 years, spring and autumn, and then Warring States, the last 250 years. This is where seven countries are fighting each other. Let your head explode on this one. For 250 years. It is seven countries fighting each other for 250 years. What's the biggest, most impressive war in European history? World Wars. World War I, World War II. How long did World War II last, roughly? 1939 to 1946 in Europe. Six years. I'm not going to stand on my head. I'm going to ask your brain to actually receive this underhand pitch and knock it out of the park. Six years of Germany, France, Britain, the United States, Italy, 
and Russia. Six years of them fighting. Is all that? These seven states fought for 250,000 years. China had 250,000, 250 years. China had a 250-year World War II during the Warring States period. They learned their political lessons really well. And in that time, although this was the bloodiest and most horrible period of China's history, it also produced the most beautiful thing China has produced. Do you know what a lotus, do you know, do you know the symbol of the lotus flower? Right at the bottom of your thing, first lotus blossom. At the very bottom of your, of your timeline. Right down here, where things are just nightmarish. Right, first lotus blossom. A lotus flower is a Buddhist symbol. What is a lotus? Why do the Buddhists uphold the lotus flower as a symbol of sort of Buddhist wisdom? Does anybody know anything about this? Okay. Can you tell me where lotus flowers grow? Do you know that much? Huh? In water, right? That's why we have lotus ponds, right? You see them all over the place. Lotus flowers growing in water. Now, what is pond water like at the bottom? Huh? Gross, because ponds are still, right? The water's not moving. And so it's just nasty, nasty, nasty down there at the bottom. It's muddy, it's mucky, it's filthy, it smells bad. It's not, it's not pure, fresh water. And yet, out of this muck rises a flower that blooms into the purest and most beautiful form of clean beauty that's rooted in muck. And that's why I call this Warring States period the first lotus blossom. Here's a pattern in Chinese history. Each wave, when it declines into a horrible thing, oh my god, the Mongols, oh my god, the period of disunity, invasions of, of nomads from all, all directions. Oh my God, the British. Well, they really, nothing much beautiful came from that one. But for the first three crashes, every time something horrible and ugly happens to China, they turn it into gold and something beautiful happens. A, a lotus blooms from that. What is it this time? It's their philosophies. The 100 schools of thought. Confucianism. Taoism. Now, does anybody have any questions before we move on? Okay, make sure your names are on that. I'll, I'll take them up and 